welcome to The Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. In today's episode, I speak with Scott Poole, who's written about the uh, how the Great War uh, basically established our uh, modern horror body of work, so to speak, literature and movies. All right, well, thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Dr. Scott Poole, author of Wasteland, The Great War and the Origins of Modern Horror. Thanks for speaking with me. Thank you, Chris. Uh, very happy to be on and to talk about the Great War and um, really the beginnings of the horror genre. So how did you first get started in studying and writing about horror? Well, so uh, really for more than a decade now, um, I have seen horror as um, a way to get into parts of the historical experience, first of the United States and then of the broader world, um, that really tells us uh, some things that we are not able to find out any other way. Um, there's actually a wonderful book that's been very influential, uh, both just in the way I think about history and actually the way I think about this particular book, as well as my previous work. It's uh, 1418 uh, by Adwin uh, Rousseau and, and, and Becker. And uh, one of their, their chapters talks about uh, the experience of um, historicizing grief and the idea that grief is not something that we normally think of as a historical topic. I believe very much the same thing about horror, um, the idea of the monster. And uh, my interest in that really is uh, grows out in part out of my own personal interest in horror film. I mean, I'm a horror nerd going back to the 1970s when I was a little kid, mm. um, but have been lucky enough to find a way to bring that together uh, with uh, with my teaching interests and my writing. Um, actually, in my teaching at the College of Charleston, I teach a course called American Monsters, which is just a, a regular course in our history curriculum that talks about everything from folk tales from uh, the colonial era to you know, slasher films in the 1980s to, um, you know, found footage horror and, and, and the new creature features and the new spiritualist horror in the present. So, um, it's a, it's a lifelong interest that I've been able to bring together with what I, I study. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the book. Um, what does it yeah. discuss? Well, so in my view, uh, the Great War just tore a hole in the world. I, I, I actually don't think that we have a hundred years now, almost after the armistice, a real sense of what happened between 1914 and 1918. And I think that the reason for that is actually that it began sort of this piling on of of, of wreckage that has continued down to the present. Um, so as a historian, I'm interested really in, in two things in the book. On the one hand, talking about the long-term experience of the war, um, the long-term effects of the war, the effects of the war on, on the men who fought the war, the men and women uh, the, who were civilians who suffered from it in the tens of millions, and then connecting that with a new kind of popular culture, uh, which was really horror as we know it. Now, I don't mean by that that there had not been, you know, macabre tales before. There certainly had been. I'm great fans of many of them. But the nature of horror 
changed in some very significant ways uh, because of some very particular directors, uh, screenwriters, um, authors, and artists. Uh, that the book, in a way, forms a kind of collective biography of. So, uh, one thing that comes to mind, in addition to, to the Great War, I think the Great War also uh, fomented the the Spanish flu ep- epidemic. Right after, right as it was ending, I think it killed a huge number of people in the world in sort yes, of absolutely. a hor- horrific way. I'm wondering, does does the flu also is that rolled into the horror of the war? Um, that's certainly part of it. Uh, you know, I talk about the the influenza uh, epidemic and the numbers of civilians that it took. I, I, I think, though, that um, you know, one part of my interpretation and and a, a number of of historians of the early twentieth century in general think about it in these terms is that you know, in the past, it was normal to talk about um, World War One. <laughs> the interwar period, and then World War II. And as you probably know, uh, now there's more of a almost uh, sort of 30 years war uh, discussion of that particular period. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, within several years after the end, the supposed end of the Great War, um, you know, we've got a war between um, the the Soviet Union and Poland with two hundred thousand casualties, a war between Greece and the Ottoman Empire, or the old or Turkey rather, mm-hmm. um, that produces another two hundred fifty thousand casualties. Um, and so, uh, when you have then the production of films like Jacques Hughes, which is in some way sort of the first zombie film, even mm-hmm. though they're not the, the the zombie army film, even though they're not called this. Mm-hmm. Um, films like Nosferatu, films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and then all of those films, you know, coming over to uh, America with the Universal Studios productions, um, you're really seeing uh, uh, various kinds of reflections on what is happening to the world, and in particular, what's happening to human beings. Because I do think that one thing that, that and, and I mean the individual human being, the individual human body, Mm-hmm. Because I, I do think that actually one thing that horror fans today would recognize looking back at the 1920s and 1930s is the fascination with uh, body horror of different kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, the terror of the corpse, um, the corpse that has not been buried properly since proper burial was not really a possibility in the Great War and, mm-hmm. and the wars that followed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I certainly think of, um, you know, we, I, the book talks a little bit about influenza, but the, the, the focus is really very much on, on the role of violence and the role of violence uh, uh, to the human body and how people try to represent that, not simply to sort of deal with it psychologically, but to actually kind of confront themselves and their audiences with the reality of what had happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, war. I think war, at least for Britain, war at, in the Great War went from being a noble, you know, a noble endeavor to just a horrific bloodbath, and they learned that very quickly. I think Britain, at least, did. I, I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I, I will add as a side note that um, 
I continue to be astonished. I think most people who think about the war are, are astonished with the fact that it continued for four years with um, not just conscripts, but people continuing to volunteer to go and fight after the reality of the trenches uh, be, you know, became known. Uh, th- this is... This is really extraordinary, and you know, I've I've actually, I've actually compared it to uh, in talking with students to try to get them to think about um, what the numbers of casualties, the millions of casualties, would have meant in a in a pre 1944 45 era. Um, you know, it's as if uh, you know multiple uh, atomic weapons were triggered in Europe over. <laughs> A number of years. I mean, it was that level of catastrophe, a level of catastrophe that, um, you know, uh, while we have seen larger numbers, we have not had our, our Western cultures and, and cultures around the world, actually, in Africa and, and in Asia, have not really experienced since. So, uh, you know, to me, it, it makes a great deal of sense that, you know, within 10 years, um, you have films like Paul Lenny's uh, The Man Who Laughs that's, you know, really a story about um, a, 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 a mutilated body. Um, Frankenstein itself, which is not the story of a reanimated corpse, but rather a kind of mountain of corpses that, you know, James Whale himself as a second lieutenant in the, in the British Army would have, would have experienced and, and would have known. So can you name, uh, so you've named a few films, can you name some more um, works, uh, literature, uh, authors and such, and also movie directors or producers who who created some of this? Yeah, so, yeah certainly. You know, you know I, I, I talk about quite a number in, in the book, so what I'll do is just, you know, mention three or four that I think, you know, might be of particular interest to your listeners, but also that, that perhaps they haven't thought of in relation to the idea of horror. Um, so, for example, the book actually spends a good bit of time with uh, Fritz Lang, hmm. uh, who, of course, is best known for Metropolis in, in 1927, which uh, walks the, sort of walks uh, the line between uh, horror and, and science fiction. There's a, a, a mad scientist that practices the occult, but at the same time there's a android double that at the same time is a kind of gothic double that you know some that Edgar Allan Poe would have recognized and uh, Lang's own war experience which was quite horrible uh, he was in the Austro-Hungarian army he was wounded uh, three times um, he returned uh, so uh, traumatized by the conflict that uh, in the first few years after the war ended as his directing career kind of gets off the ground he actually became known for having these terrible fits of anger that would involve him waving around his service uh, revolver uh, as if he were back in the trenches mm-hmm. um, and then Long of course made it later uh, makes uh, this incredible film M mm-hmm. uh, which in some ways is the first serial killer movie uh, when we watch Psycho uh, when we watch Peeping Tom um, in 1960, they're really looking back to, to 1931's M. So, so Lang is an example. Um, the, I, I have, I previously wrote a biography of H.P. Lovecraft and, um, some of the material about his fascination with the Great War that did not make it into that particular book, 
um, can be found here, mm-hmm. uh, especially his some of his nonfiction writings actually about uh, his his interest and understanding of the war, um, where that took him in the 1920s and 30s politically, and also just uh, I, I think uh, you know. I, I think for the first time, in some ways, uh, I'm going to just kind of immodestly say that I think I've noticed to, to, to what to what a degree the Great War played a role in both his early fiction and what we think of as more of the classic period after the Call of Cthulhu. Um, I don't know that the Call of Cthulhu could have been written in a world that the Great War had not uh, had not occurred. Hmm. Um, I think finally, just because it's going to, to some of your listeners, and and, and maybe to you, Chris, it's going to sound a bit out of um, left field, but um, Franz Kafka actually plays an important role in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I am, part of what I'm doing there is trying to, um, I mean, you know, as every horror fan knows, uh, our hobby is often seen as pretty, Lowbrow yeah. and disreputable, and um, maybe a bit trashy, even. And uh, you know, Kafka, on the other hand, that's sort of like the heights of, you know, literary modernism, or however one decides to place him. Uh, and yet, Kafka, to me, is 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 writing, um, you know, uh, uh, very very ter- terrifying tales. Uh, not only you know his most famous Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have this transformation of a human being into an insect, which suggests everything from the work of William Burroughs to, you know, <laughs> B films like the original Fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 also uh, just telling terrible tales uh, that are less known, like uh, in the Penal Colony, mm-hmm. which uh, Eli Roth uh, could uh, could make a film of. I mean, it's a kind of. Um, you know, it's a kind of 1910s, 1920s torture porn, mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And so, uh, and, and this is not going to make everyone happy. I don't know how horror fans will feel about it. I, I do know how a lot of literary critics will feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't, you know, it, to me, the horror genre is not just this dead end alley and some things fit in it and some don't. I mean, I think that, you know, most of us who are, who really like live these these films and these books and and, and horror culture? Um, you know, we we know it when we see it. I mean, we we know it when we experience it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've read um, a fair bit of Kafka uh, many years ago, and, and at a minimum, his stuff is disturbing. You know, even if you're not willing to say it's horror. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely, and and um, and and I think you know. Um, and, and, and there are elements, I think, in it that uh, I think, again, because of the allegedly lowbrow nature of, of horror, have, have just kind of been skipped. I mean, in, in The Castle, his, his uh, unfinished novel, The Castle, uh, that there, there's these sort of clear supernatural elements. Um, you know, I mean, the, the castle seems to move. It's day and then it's suddenly night and um, other things that he just sort of leaves there. He, he's also been very influential on uh, one of my favorite horror, contemporary horror authors that I've written about before, Thomas Ligotti, mm-hmm. um, whose work is, I, to me at least, really hard to imagine without without Kafka. So um, you, you mentioned briefly the occult. Um, mm-hmm. did, how, how did 
people's interest and approach to the occult change after the Great War, and it did did it impact um, the creation of these movies and literature? Oh, it, it absolutely did, and um, it, it is in some ways such a strange story because you, you have at the same time an upsurge of interest in the occult, uh, and in fact a, a kind of uh, what you could call a renewal of uh, a spiritualism, uh, the notion of, uh, of working with mediums to contact the dead. Um, and, and that idea had been around for a long time. That wasn't a creation of the Great War itself. Um, and, and you also would expect it to essentially reemerge during the Great War. I mean, people are losing loved ones by the millions. Uh, you know, uh, as Freud pointed out with his own sons and the Austro-Hungarian army, um, you know, death is not, become, is not an abstract idea anymore. It is something that lives with us every day. Uh, and so, you know, the interest in spiritualism is not surprising. What is surprising is that spiritualism takes on a really new meaning. So, whereas before, um, you know, you might go to a seance frequently, you might go to a medium frequently if you were involved in the spiritualist movement. Um, the purpose becomes in uh, the Great War era and right after uh, to really just get a single message <laughs> Uh, from uh, the, you know, beloved dad that I'm fine, you know, uh, everything's good. Uh, I'm in, in one of the most popular spiritualist texts of the time, I'm in the, a place called Summerland, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that's it. And uh, to me, this is connected to just the realities of the war in which it was both impractical but at the same time, by the populace in Britain and France and Germany, to some degree, even in the United States, when, when the U.S. finally enters the war, um, there was just this impossibility and lack of interest in retrieving the corpse of the dead. Hmm. And uh, this is this is sort of shocking because... For the last hundred years, not just in Britain, but um, in, in in the Germanies and and, ha- and the Habsburg lands, there was so much sentimentality that surrounded uh, the body and the proper burial of the body, and that just disappears overnight. And I, th- I think that's both for practical reasons and also for also the desire not to see what modern combat did to the body. Um, something that was very significant in terms of um, in terms of the wounded as well, and so uh, you know, spiritualism really becomes a way to deal with that sentiment, to say goodbye to the dead. But it's significant to me that it really is just saying goodbye, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that suggests to me what we see in the films and fiction of the next thirty, one could argue, hundred years, where uh, we've gone back to this almost primal sense of, you know, the the terror of the dead returning. Hmm. Um, we don't want their messages. <laughs> huh. uh, and, and and there's something in that in, in the interest in, in, in the occult. Do you see in these uh, creations after the Great War, do you see um, the influence of nihilism or pessimism, you know, this anger that grew out, you know, this emotional anger, do you see that influence on horror? 
Yes, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that's absolutely essential in understanding uh, everything from filmmakers to artists, I think of artists especially with this, but it's it's true of the films as well. Most of the, most of the people that I talk about are veterans or have been direct uh, have been affected by the war in a really direct way. Um, and they are furious and they're furious at the possibility that anyone could or would create a sentimental sort of gauze to go over the war. And so part of the point of an artist, a surrealist artist like Max Ernst, a German veteran who himself was wounded numerous times, um, the reason that he is painting bodies that, um, you know, they look like something out of the mind of Clive Barker, um, they are horrifying representations. They're like something that, you know, those of us who, uh, you know, uh, played the Silent Hill games back in the day, uh, would, would recognize and, and perhaps that borrowed from him in some ways. And, and that was a, a really furious attempt, um, to force those who had not seen the horror of the Great War to experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this in, in many of the some of the poets that I talk about who who often write something like horror poetry. Um, you know, um, Siegfried Sassoon's very famous British um, veteran uh, who who wrote poetry about the war. He's even angry about um, um, some of the monuments that are built, the, the famous Menin Gate, the East Gate, and Ypres. Um, you know, uh, which he calls in one of his poems a sepulcher of crime mm-hmm. and, and does so in using kind of the language of horror. He imagines a situation in which, as he says, made, you know, the dead would rise from their slime, um, and call down curses on the sepulcher of crime. And, uh, so I, I think that, you know, just in, in almost every person that I examined, I, I suppose in every director, writer, poet, Filmmaker that uh, I look at, um, that there is that very, very deep uh, sense that um, we want to confront the public uh, with what has happened. We don't want to allow them uh, to forget what has happened to us. And we, on some level, also don't want to forget uh, what we did. Um, this is, a, of course, always part of the trauma of war. There's the savagery that is done to soldiers, there's the savagery that soldiers commit. And you, they have to deal with both. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with uh, uh, an author named Celine? Who is... Uh, uh, yes, I am. And I'm curious... Celine uh, plays actually a fairly significant role in the chapter on the emergence of, of, of fascism as, as a kind of form of horror mm-hmm. in the 1930s, Yes. But yes, he, he he writes really the definitive French novel of of the of the war. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know, I don't recall horror elements in it, but it certainly felt as though oh, there it's, ghosts I, everywhere. Yeah, there there are. There's not only ghosts. There's there's bodies torn apart. Mm-hmm. There's um, you know one of the reasons that um, and uh, that 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 his his book um, Journey to the End of the Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, became what it became is that you know it uh, for 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 the French people is that it it seemed um, it seemed like it was telling a true story 
of the war. And it also, interestingly, given his later political direction, mm-hmm. it, it, it did not glorify, uh, the veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually portrays himself, uh, and many of his fellows as, you know, we, you know, we were terrified. We deserted when we got the chance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the character Ferdinand that's clearly modeled on him actually deserves several times, you know, in the course of, in the course of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's in a section of the book that deals with sort of the, um, uh, in, in some ways, uh, you know, more insidious uses of, of horror in the, in the 1930s. Uh, Jesse Lean, uh, takes this, uh, uh, hard, hard right turn, uh, and, and by the late 30s is writing, uh, anti-Semitic pamphlets, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, enormous supporter of, of Adolf Hitler and, and then of the Vichy, uh, regime. Um, to, to, to the point that, um, you know, his, his literary fame in, in France today is, is, is quite, quite controversial. Right. Now, um, I wonder if also as a consequence of the war, there was a huge amount of death and destruction of, of animals, you know, horses, you know, Mm -hmm. farm animals, just, you know, pets. And, um, does that does that kind of death figure into uh, the the horror that comes out of the Great War? You, you know, to some degree. I, I mean, I think that that is uh, it's it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I um, I was struck in my research for the book uh, how often um, you know that is becomes kind of a footnote uh, in in these discussions when you know, for example. Um, during uh, the Battle of Verdun in 1916, um, in which, you know, by this time, by 19, 1916, as you well know, I mean, horses are not being used as cavalry. They're mm-hmm. being used only to, you know, try to resupply Maxim guns and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. field artillery, pull field ar- artillery. But, you know, 7,000, you know, horses are killed in the first, you know, few months of, of the war. And it, it certainly, I think, had... A great deal of effect on, um, well, for example, French directors like uh, Georges Franju, who, um, you know, uh, in The Blood of the Beasts, um, creates this sort of uh, neo-realist horror film of, of the slaughterhouse mm-hmm. uh, with the suggestion that, you know, this is a kind of a metaphor for um, the human experience. Franju's most famous for... Um, uh, for for later the the later film Eyes Without a Face uh, this kind of formative post post war French horror film mm-hmm. um, so so yeah you know it, it's certainly there I, I think also uh, generally forgotten and and this makes the casualty counts for the Great War almost impossible to to figure I mean the the, the number you generally hear is sixteen million mm-hmm. um, uh, dead but. Um, you know, the, the numbers of civilians and how one counts <laughs> the civilian dead, whether it's even possible, um, the level of brutality, uh, that was practiced against civilians, um, uh, both by the Allies and, and the Central Powers. Um, this is something that I highlight in the book, um, in part just to, you know, as we have to in writing about these things to kind of bear witness to it. But also, um, 
I think this created a, a population that was ready for films uh, filled with body horror, that was ready to see Nosferatu rise from the dead, um, that was ready to see bodies compared to waxworks uh, in the film Waxworks, um, that was ready for Frankenstein uh, in 1931 and, and then in Bride in 1935. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to how you did your research. Can you tell me how you, um, you know, obtained the films and, you know, got access to the films, I mean, and um, oh, yeah. what, what did you use? Yeah, well, so there were several different uh, sources. Uh, so I uh, did spend uh, some time in uh, France and Belgium. Um, I was unable to make it to the uh, Imperial War Museum, although I was lucky in that uh, so much of their material is is digitized, as so many, um, so, so much uh, primary sources are. Um, and so uh, the the book actually intertwines uh, veterans accounts um, with the stories of pe- the life of people like Fritz Long, um, F. W. Murnau. Uh, Chalene, uh, Salvador Dali, who had a very strange experience in the post-war era, artists like Otto Dix of, of Germany, who's not particularly well-known, but I hope will become more well-known, and, and Kafka. Um, and, and then the films, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that most of the films that, that um, I needed to work with were available in, uh, in very good prints. Um, it is... It's a bit of a challenge to find the 1919 version of Abel Gantz's J'accuse, which I, I do talk a good bit about mm-hmm. um, because of this extraordinary scene, really, at the end of the film where, um, uh, the, you know, all the, the, the dead rise and, and march and sort of demand of the living, you know, what, what have you done to us? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. why have we, why have, why has our sacrifice not been not been remembered uh but 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 it actually is also available on you know um youtube new motion um you know other other sites of of that type so so actually one of the things that i'm hoping with uh the the book is that um people who don't know these films horror fans who you know don't know these films will go back to them i i think that they're going to be pleasantly surprised and and, and, and for a horror fan, pleasantly shocked uh, at uh, just how strange and, and, and deeply disturbing um, and, uh, and, and, and actually truly, truly frightening uh, many of these films are, particularly seen against the backdrop of the times. Did you discover any um, piece of literature or movie that you hadn't originally thought um, knew about that maybe you came across? Actually, uh, so this is uh, going uh, back a bit to uh, Jacques. Mm-hmm. Um, I was from, I was aware of the very strange story that I tell in the book of the original making of the film in 1918, in which veterans from Verdun actually play the zombie army. Mm-hmm. Um, many of whom then went. This was made in the summer of 18, so many of them then went back to died before the armistice in November, so I knew that strange story. Um, I actually was not aware, uh, somewhat of my embarrassment, that Abel Gantz, uh, 20 years later, remade the film, 
Um, uh, for some people, a much more famous version of the film because it's much more generally available. Uh, and uh, actually accentuated the supernatural elements, um, made uh, his uh, Army of the Dead much more spectral, uh, the sort of marching skeletons, uh, more even more use of, of uh, double exposure and, and, and superimposition uh, techniques, um, and made it into actually much more of an anti-war film. Um, I, I will mention that another uh, surprise that I had, just because I had never been able to sort of bear to sit down and watch it, even though in some of my classes we, we, we cover this era, um, one of the very interesting things that I think that um, that readers will, will 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 be fascinated by and 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 think about a long time what it means is that um, in this um, the, the, this terribly anti-Semitic propaganda film, The Eternal Jew, um, which was produced by uh, Goebbels and and the uh, the Reich Ministry of Propaganda in 1940, it was shown to SS troops that were being sent with the mobile killing units um, after the invasion of Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the number of clips that were used from um, various horror film uh, from the Weimar era, uh, and the strangest example of that was the use of uh, Fritz Lang's M and images of Peter Lohr, who by that time was living in exile and starring in horror films in the United States. Hmm. Uh, because of his Jewish background, he had had to flee Germany, as so many did in 1933. Hmm. And they actually use an image of him from Fritz Lang, who also had fled, uh, in that film... Uh, to illustrate their anti-Semitic point. Hmm. And they, they in fact, even put him on the poster for the Eternal. So so you have this very strange situation in which he is a star (laughs) of the Weimar era. He's also the serial murderer from M. Um, He's also exactly the image that the fascists, the Nazis, you know, in this particular case, uh, want to show as kind of the very face of degeneracy a justification for uh, the Holocaust. It must have been depressing for the, the man. Uh, you know, I, 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 I actually looked for comments that he made about it. You know, it's very interesting. He, he was an incredibly interesting person, very learned man, actually, um, and yet never really wished to speak uh, very much. Uh, certainly not in comparison to Fritz Lang, who liked to talk kind of all the time about uh, about leaving Germany in the aftermath. Uh, uh, but but Peter Lohr uh, really uh, really did not. And yet I, I think it's interesting that he continued to star in sort of these dark roles that um, you know hint at his time uh, playing out these characters on the. The Haunted Screen is a, a German film scholar called uh, German Films in the, the 20s and early 30s. Mm-hmm. When did the first comedy horror come out? And for some reason, <laughs> you know, Abbott and Costello popped in my mind. <laughs> right, right. I don't know why. Yeah, so, so you're, yeah, you're absolutely uh, on track there, I think, because, you know, um, there, there's kind of two stories there. Um, uh, the, the the short version is that, you know, um, by the late 1940s, you have Abbott and Costello meeting 
everybody from Frankenstein uh, to the Invisible Man to the Mummy. And uh, you have kind of the traditional, truly terrifying monsters for people of the early 30s being played for laughs. But there's kind of a, another interesting story with that in that um, people like Harold Lloyd, actors like Harold Lloyd, uh, even Buster Keaton had starred in one. They, they had starred in the, the early 20s in America in uh, essentially some, um, you know, uh, old dark house films and, and played kind of entirely for laughs, um, you know, ghost spooks them, um, you know, uh, turns out to be there's kind of the Scooby-Doo explanation where, you know, it's like it's like the cousin trying to get the property and that sort of thing. <laughs> but But what's strange about it is that, you know, in the years after the Great War, um, in the late 20s, by the time you have European directors like the German director Paul Lenny leaving Germany, James Whale coming to the United States, the old Dark House film takes on a much more serious tone and actually begins, um, well, uh, for example, in Paul Lenny's version of Cat and the Canary, um, you can see in it really all of the themes of German cinema, uh, the, the seance, the ghost, the medium. And that's a film I think that when horror fans revisit, they'll be quite excited by because there's really some, uh, there's really some, for one thing, very beautifully terrifying shots. Uh, there is a suggestion of the real supernatural as well as, you know, what's sometimes called the explained supernatural. And, and, and the same is certainly true of James Whale's Old Dark House that, uh, that uh, that makes reference to the Great War directly. Um, actually, one of the main characters of that film, uh, possibly two. Uh, in one case, it's a little oblique, and another case, it's very direct. But mm-hmm. but uh, they are they are veterans of the Great War who have been in different ways damaged by what happened to them in it. Um, so so it's sort of interesting that you know you. In American film, you sort of start with the old spooky house being uh, played for laughs, but then when Europeans who've been influenced by the war come to Hollywood, that changes. Um, eventually, in the late 1940s, uh, the horror film begins to become escapist again in many respects. What did you find uh, most enjoyable in the research for this book? I have to tell you that I found almost nothing enjoyable about researching this book. <laughs> um, and I, I, I know that sounds terrible, but I, I um, you know, I, I have almost nothing good to say other than my enjoyment and love of these films and, and some of the directors. Um, I James Whale is particularly beloved to me, so... You know, I'm liable to go home and watch part of his oeuvre tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fritz Lang is wonderful. Mr. Murnau is wonderful. Um, but uh, I, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't wish to sound melodramatic, but uh, I, I really suffered with this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and in ways I didn't expect to and in ways I never, I never really have with a book before. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I, I don't know that this will particularly encourage anyone to read it, but I, <laughs> I can remember in sort of the last year of work, just um, 
honestly just being filled with dread uh just that like you know okay it's time to get up and and write uh because uh you know it just seemed like i was facing um a a, a mound of corpses uh every you know every single day and um you know i i it is impossible for me even as a historian to uh you know, part of what you ask about my research, I mean, part of it was actually just bicycling around Ypres, for example, mm-hmm. the Ypres salient. And, um, you know, there was, um, there, there's no way that if, if I think if one, you know, contemplates that era and spends a lot of time with the men and women that suffered during that era, there's no way that one can simply be a sort of historical tourist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 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 experiencing those kinds of things. So, um, uh, other than my love for the directors and many of the artists and many of the writers, I mean, I you know, as far as the material the se- itself, I I I really hated it. Hmm. No, I understand. It's stressful. It sounds like. Uh, it was. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I have bad dreams about this book, which oh, wow. again is not really a selling point. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, I almost, in some ways, if I can be totally honest, um, I almost, in some ways, after I completed it, and you know, especially the, you know, the boxes arrive and there the book is, and it's exciting or it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I, you know, I almost had the sense that I had written a kind of a bad book. Hmm. Um, and, uh, not bad, uh, aesthetically, I hope, mm-hmm. but, um, just a book that, um, you know, I, I, I wondered if the world needed it. Well, it sounds like it does, um, you know, to just be more aware of, of human suffering, if nothing else. Um, yeah, I hope that that's the, yeah, I hope that that's the response. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it, it's, it's not a, a, an, an easy path. Uh, you know, I think I, I think it's a book that gives the reader a path to walk. Um, and, uh, way to, st- I, I think that by the end to find their way sort of out of the forest of it, but, uh, but, but I, I yeah, I don't promise a, an easy, <laughs> an easy path. Sounds like you uh, you sort of entered a literary version of a Lovecraft world uh, right there. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I don't know if the or that line from Call of Cthulhu, the, the the blossoms of spring will forever be poison to me. I don't know if it's quite <laughs> if it's quite that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think that there is so much power in what the men and women of that generation were able to create in in response to the catastrophe of the war and the catastrophe of their lives that one doesn't has encountered something that is much larger than 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 oneself and 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 one's own own life and that 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 will stay will stay with you you know Mm -hmm. was there anything you found in your research that was especially surprising that you didn't expect Apart from your emotional uh, reaction, uh, I uh, I was surprised. I knew that Bela Lugosi. This is a small fact in some respects, but in other respects, it says a great deal. And some of this, I'll leave readers to. I won't tell the whole story. I'll leave it for readers to learn about it. But mm-hmm. I knew about Bela Lugosi's service in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even knew that uh, he had actually served at one point in the elite uh, ski patrol 
um, had been wounded. Um, I was not aware of some of the um, absolutely horrific things that had happened to him. Mm. Um, that he really only talked about, and it was actually this was this was very difficult to give up or, or to, to 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 discover because there was so much that. Um, Family members, Bill Lugosi Jr., for example, others really did, didn't want to really talk about with regard to that experience because they didn't want to take away from, um, they all, they felt that he already had sort of been cheated in some ways out of his Hollywood stardom. Hmm. And so, you know, they didn't want to add all this other kind of extra baggage, um, of the war, but it, it was, incredibly interesting and it made me understand him it made me understand the roles that he was attracted to i think that it uh made me understand a bit more about um all of the things that people who have talked who worked with lugosi talked about in terms of his reserve his unwillingness to speak on the set kind of engage with other actors mm-hmm. often that's been you know it's it's been explained with well he you know, he couldn't speak English well, or he was embarrassed by his accent. And uh, I think that once readers find out both his experience to, during the war and then his brief time um, back home in, in Hungary, in uh, in Budapest uh, a- after the war, I, I think they'll understand Lugosi better. And I, I know that they'll never be able to watch Dracula uh, the same way again. Wow. Was there a... Uh a question or an issue that was particularly difficult to come to a conclusion on or maybe still haven't solved? I think that, uh, you know, one issue that remains for me uh, is really not related to the war itself or to the immediate aftermath or to all of these artists and and thinkers that we've been discussing. it's really more a question about uh, our own memory and forgetfulness uh, in, in relation to the war. Uh, and I think, you know, this may be something that is sort of the more on the, your, back to your question about, you know, things I was surprised by. Mm-hmm. I was surprised and remain surprised. I actually remain surprised with this regarding veterans of World War II Korea, Vietnam, uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Um, the idea that we can and do glorify the idea of the veteran um, in memorial, in on special days of celebration, um, while also completely forgetting about and in some respects even shunting aside um, the, the actual veterans, often because their physical and psychological wounds are are too deep for people to for the for civilians essentially to to really want to to deal with and i i you know i still wonder i guess i do wonder uh why that happens so quickly why on the very first armistice day um you know the french public is horrified when they see sort of the first column of veterans um, you know, some of whom are, are horribly have horrible facio-dental wounds. Um, most, many of whom are amputees. Um, wh- why they sort of draw 
drew back from that. Mm-hmm. Um, while at the same time, the again the abstract notion of the veteran remains so um, remains so important, and we we saw we see that in the United States as well, where you know there this is sort of hard to believe, but you know there there's actually more statues built to the doughboy, the World War One doughboy. Um, than than individual figures of any other war. That's including the American Civil War, where where, where we think about all the monuments. Uh, But then the the treatment of the the actual veterans, um, the actual sort of breaking of the promise of the government to... um, uh, to, to, to essentially pay off their, 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 the, the war bonds that they had been issued, um, this resulting in the, the, you know, the bonus army in, in the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while at the same time, as I quoted in my book, uh, you have people writing about, uh, from everyone from the American Legion to, um, you know, uh, various kinds of women's magazines about, you know, um, uh, our, our veterans need to be memorialized, but, you know, we're just, we're a cheerful people and we don't look back. And so, you know, it's very sad that all these terrible things happened, but, um, you know, let, let's get on with things. Yeah. And, uh, I think that, you know, uh, I actually have a hope, uh, and, and I, I don't know if this will happen, but I do have a hope that, that uh, particularly veterans of 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 the Iraq and, and Af- Afghanistan conflicts will find find their way to this book. I think that they're going to find some things in the book that resonate um, with their own experience and um, you know our rather quick forgetfulness of them mm-hmm. and actually forgetfulness that they exist mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. So, did you have any difficulties getting the book published? You talked about, you know, writing it, the difficulties mm-hmm. in writing it. But as far as publication, any issues there? Um, no, I, I didn't actually. I um, so I, I've been an author with uh, Counterpoint for uh, a number of years now. They, this is actually the third book that I've published um, with with Counterpoint uh, and their various uh, imprints um, that. They're an extraordinary press, and um, you know, even a, a, a topic that they have not explored before, like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in fact, publish a lot of fiction as well as nonfiction, political nonfiction. Um, you know, uh, they just sort of gave me incredible freedom to kind of go for it and turn it into to what I, I wanted it to be. So, so my really kind of long term relationship with uh, with them, um, you know. No, no problems with with publication at all. What's your next writing project? You know, I haven't decided. I, you know, I, I, I guess from what I said earlier, it sounds like I need to get over this book uh, <laughs> first. Uh, but uh, you know, I actually uh, have a couple of things I'm thinking about, and don't want to give away the store too much. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I do have an idea of a. Going back to my book uh, Monsters in America, which is has a revised edition coming out this year. It first came out in 2011, mm-hmm. um, and and actually uh, thinking a little bit, uh, you know, this may be looking at sort of the other end of things. Thinking a little bit more about horror in the last uh, 20 years, especially sort of horror since the 
since the millennium, horror in America since 9-11, um, maybe horror more internationally as well, since that certainly is, um, is, is an interest of mine. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that, that is still in the discussion and sort of, you know, th- thinking through it, uh, phase. Um, there certainly is quite a number of things that I'm, I'm interested in, you know, I, I, it's, I, I'm a person who has, you know, sort of six books that they'd like to write, you know, uh, right now. And so it, it takes me, it takes me a little bit of time to find something that like I'm really going to both involve myself in passionately and and you know that is as wasteland did you know break my heart a little bit as well so where can pe- where will people be able to find the book and where can they find you your writings on social media oh yeah certainly yeah certainly so uh the book is going to be general is generally available everywhere uh mm-hmm. my preference uh is that uh the book be purchased from uh a a person's favorite independent bookstore. Uh, independent bookstores have been big supporters of me <laughs> always, mm-hmm. uh, and so I am of them. Um, both the uh, concrete stores and places like Indiebound, uh, but it's 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 available everywhere. And uh, also, um, you know, um, people can find me online. Uh, I tweet uh, at Monsters America simply at Monsters America mm-hmm. and a lot of the kind of op-ed pieces, short pieces, essays, uh, other kinds of things are available there. And, and you know, none of my books uh, since 2009 when I've really been sort of dealing with the, the horror genre are, are out of print, so so they really are, are all available. Um, Lovecraft, uh, the Lovecraft biography is widely available and um, was a Bram Stoker uh, finalist, and so um, so so yeah, I, I think that I'm pretty pretty easy to find. I hope so. Okay, uh, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts? Okay. No, I don't think so. You know, those those were actually wonderful questions. So um, you know, I and and a lot of the, exactly the kinds of things that I wanted to talk about. So Good. you know, thank you again for the time. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.